You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hafnium visits Belgium, low sophistication attacks on operational technology, updates on healthcare sector ransomware attacks in New Zealand and Ireland, wipers masquerading as ransomware, privateers are defined as a new category of threat actor, TSA's new standards for pipeline security, the World Economic Forum has advice for boards in the oil and gas sector, Rick Howard interviews Lisa Mundy on her book Code Girls, the untold story of the American women codebreakers who helped win World War II. Joe Kerrigan describes fraudulent search engine ad buys, and as one criminal is sentenced, eight more are arrested. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, May 26th, 2021. It's not all ransomware all the time, although it can certainly seem that way. Sometimes it's espionage. Reports out of Belgium say that the country's Federal Home Affairs Ministry came under attack as far back as April of 2019. The apparent goal, the Brussels Times says, was information theft in the service of espionage. The incident is under investigation, but sources connected with Hafnium, the Chinese threat actor believed to have exploited Microsoft Exchange server vulnerabilities. Ransomware and other cyber-attack tools have for some time been undergoing commodification, being traded in criminal markets or offered through affiliate programs to operators who themselves lack the skills necessary to write effective code. The same process may now be underway with respect to the compromise of operational technology, FireEye's Mandiant unit concludes. The researchers call these low-sophistication incidents, and while they don't usually have immediate physical effects— They can still disrupt industrial processes that interact with business systems in particular. They also express concern that low-sophistication attacks contribute to a normalization of attacks against OT networks. Reuters reports that the group claiming responsibility for the cyber attack against the Wakato District Health Board has begun releasing what seems to be private patient information. Authorities in New Zealand have been relatively tight-lipped about the incident, but it's widely taken to have been a ransomware attack. RNZ says the government has stated that it won't pay the ransom and that the National Privacy Commissioner has directed all district health boards to address the vulnerabilities the attackers exploited against the Waikato DHB. In the other big ongoing ransomware attack against a healthcare organization, 
The Irish Times reports that Ireland's HSE is happy with the decryptors it's obtained and that some suspended services will resume by tomorrow, although full recovery remains some weeks away. Ransomware has also been used as cover for attacks whose motive is disruptive or destructive, not financial. The NotPetya attacks of 2017 are a good example of this particular form of misdirection. Sentinel Labs is tracking the evolution of Agrius, an Iranian threat group active against Israeli targets since last year, whose tools began as wipers disguised as ransomware. In some respects, it's now apparently come full circle. One of its wipers, Apostle, has recently evolved into what it was pretending to be, fully functional ransomware, deployed against targets in the United Arab Emirates. That said, as ZDNet points out, the point of the operation still seems to be disruption of regional rivals as opposed to simple financial gain. Speculation has placed the relationship between the dark side ransomware operators and the Russian government on a spectrum that runs from inattention through incompetence to corruption and on through toleration, permission, and encouragement all the way to direction. The reality probably lies somewhere in the middle, in the toleration-to-encouragement range. There's a convergence of interests. Russia sees a rival embarrassed and inconvenienced, and the gang gets a payoff, in this case a bit more than $4 million. With this incident in mind, Cisco's Talos Group has introduced a new threat category in recognition of what appears to be an emerging trend. They call the threat actors privateers, and describe them as actors who benefit either from government decisions to turn a blind eye toward their activities or from more material support, but where the government doesn't necessarily exert direct control over their actions. Talos is a bit starchy about the government role in all of this, saying that the distancing in itself does not diminish the responsibility these governments share with these groups. The researchers also distinguish privateers from mercenaries, operators whom a government hires for specific purposes. The U.S. Transportation Security Administration is issuing new standards for pipeline security this week, prompted by the Colonial Pipeline ransomware attack. The new regulations will, according to the Wall Street Journal, have teeth for enforcement. Earlier standards were guidelines that relied upon voluntary compliance— In this respect, the new system will resemble regulations under which the electrical power industry currently operates. One of the central requirements of the new regulations is expected to be stronger reporting. Voluntary standards aren't being ignored either. The World Economic Forum has published a white paper, Cyber Resilience in the Oil and Gas Industry, Playbook for Boards and Corporate Officers that offers sector executives guidelines for handling threats like the one that disrupted Colonial Pipeline. The white paper was prepared with significant input from security companies. The white paper advances 10 principles for boards in particular. They include responsibility for cyber resilience, command of the subject, an accountable officer, integration of cyber resilience, risk appetite, risk assessment and reporting, resilience plans, community, review, and effectiveness. The report also offers advice on implementation. You can find the details on their website. And finally, two notes on ordinary cybercrime. The record reports that Kirill Fiersov, 30 years young and formerly proprietor of the now-defunct carding forum Deer.io, 
was sentenced to two and a half years by a U.S. federal court in California. Mr. Fersoff took a guilty plea to one charge of unauthorized solicitation of access devices. And Naked Security has the news that Britain's dedicated card and payment crime unit has collared eight suspects in a home delivery scam, one in which the fish bait is a notice that appears to be from a trusted courier service, like the Royal Mail, asking for help in making a delivery. The fish hook is a link that takes the victims to a page where they're invited to make a very small payment, pennies really. But of course, that payment is not the goal. What the scammers are after is the victim's pay card details. What follows is easily imagined. Should the suspects be convicted, we trust they'll be detained at Her Majesty's pleasure. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. My colleague Rick Howard continues this week's series of interviews with authors of well-known cybersecurity books. Here's Rick with the latest. It's Cybersecurity Canon Week here at the CyberWire, and unofficially, all of the CyberWire staff members are referring to this week as Shark Week for cybersecurity books because the Cybersecurity Canon Project has announced the author selectees for the Hall of Fame Awards in 2021, and I'm interviewing all the winning authors. Each day this week, you will get a taste of the winning author interviews here in this daily podcast segment. But you can listen to the entire long-form interviews as special episodes in my CSO Perspectives podcast 
only available to the CyberWire Pro subscribers. Today's interview is with Liza Monday, the author of Code Girls, the untold story of the American women codebreakers who helped win World War II. I've been a fanboy to the codebreaking efforts at Bletchley Park during World War II for many years now. Alan Turing is a personal computer science hero of mine, and I've first heard about his enigma-busting exploits against German codes in my favorite hacker novel of all time, Cryptonomicon, written by the cybersecurity canon Lifetime Achievement winner, Neil Stevenson. I always knew that there were like-minded efforts going on in the Pacific Theater. I had heard rumors of the Americans breaking various codes, like the team working for William Friedman, solving the Japanese Purple Code, and the efforts of Joe Roquefort breaking the JN25 code that led to the victory at the Battle of Midway. But I never stumbled upon any books that told the complete story. Well, now I have. Code Girls by Eliza Monday is a treasure. When I got Liza to the CyberWire hash table, I asked her about what compelled her to write this book. Once I learned about the story of 10,000 women being recruited to come to Washington during World War II, many of them former school teachers and or college seniors, I couldn't resist telling the story. I couldn't believe that the story hadn't already been told in the many books that existed on World War II code breaking. The remarkable characteristic about the Code Girl story is that despite the heroic efforts of Friedman and Roquefort, the day-to-day work of deciphering Japanese and other nations' codes during World War II was largely done by American women, civilians at first, and then in collaboration with the newly formed WAVES, or Women Accepted for Volunteer Emergency Service in the United States Naval Reserve, and the WACS, the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps, that both came into service in 1942. While military and civilian men mostly got the credit, it was these remarkable women who ran the show, and their efforts were so secretive that many of these women went to their grave without telling their loved ones what they did during the war. Family and friends thought that the Code Girls simply performed administrative work. In the book, Liza is able to tell the stories of some 20-plus women, what they did with their code-breaking efforts, and how they lived their lives during the war. I asked Liza about the decision made by military leaders to inject 10,000 women into the code-breaking war effort. In other words, what was the catalyst? Well, obviously, Pearl Harbor was a uh, terrible surprise to the United States. It was the event that launched us into the into World War II, and it was also a massive intelligence failure. And at the very same moment that we were sending tens and ultimately hundreds of thousands of young men out to fight in all corners of the world, crossing these major oceans, we knew how inadequate our intelligence gathering abilities were, and we had to ramp up our signals intelligence. Pr- really overnight in order to make sure that another Pearl Harbor didn't occur. And before the war, it would have been young men who were recruited to do this work, but they were suddenly unavailable. And so when I was doing my research for the book, I found a document in which you could see the light bulb moment going on above a naval official's head. Um, it, it read, it was the recruiting document for the Navy's code breaking service, and it read, new source, women's colleges. And so for the first time in American history, Educated women and bright women were allowed to show what they could do. I want to give a full-throated endorsement for this book. It opens up a history into World War II that I didn't know about before. And it makes the case that women don't have to break into the cybersecurity industry. They have been here from the very beginning. The book is called Code Girls, the untold story of the American women codebreakers who helped win World War II. The author is Liza Monday, and she is the newest author addition 
to the Cybersecurity Canon Hall of Fame. And if you are interested in the collection of Cybersecurity Canon Hall of Fame books, plus all the candidate books and even the best novels with a cybersecurity theme, check out the Cybersecurity Canon website sponsored by Ohio State University at icdt.osu.edu slash cybercanon, all one word. And with one N for canon of literature, not two Ns for machines that blow things up. And if that's all too hard, go to your preferred search engine and type Cybersecurity Canon and Ohio State University. And congratulations to Liza for her induction into the Cybersecurity Canon Hall of Fame. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute, also my co-host over on the Hacking Humans podcast. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Uh, Interesting article. Uh, This is from uh, the folks over at The Record by Recorded Future. Um, And uh, they're sharing uh, some information they got from the FBI about some folks trying to uh, spoof some banks here. What's going on here, Joe? It is an FBI, what they call a PIN alert, a private industry notification. Uh, Mm. I don't like the overloading of acronyms, Dave. Um, but, uh, it's called a pin alert and it is, uh, unfortunately the record actually can't share the entire alert because of, uh, sharing restrictions from the FBI. Mm -hmm. Um, but they've been notified and they are talking about some of the things that are going on in here. And what we're seeing is something you and I have talked about, uh, for about the past year. This is something that's relatively new in, in, in social engineering attacks is search engines, uh, that sell ads are selling ads to malicious actors who are linking to lookalike sites for financial institutions. So if, Mm -hmm. let's say you have uh, an account with Bank of America, for example, uh, and you go to Google and you type in Bank of America, because that's what we do, right? We don't actually go to our web browser and type in bankofamerica.com. We go to Google and type in Bank of America, and Google gives us the link. Um, Yeah. But at the same point in time, they also give ads, and people are buying ads that then link to a phishing page. And I'm actually seeing this a lot. It, it's, it's, uh, I'm, when I, when I'm searching for something, this has happened to me. I'm a, I'm a customer of Comcast. And when I call or when I Google Comcast customer support, the first link is not Comcast customer support. It's an ad to something else trying to hmm. sell me like internet services or something. Right. Right. And that's the second link. The actual first search result is Comcast customer support. But the, but the first thing I see is an ad. And yeah. these ads are particularly malicious. And they're doing, the the FBI says that they're doing two things. One, they're actually purchasing the ads. And two, they're using search engine optimization on uh, fake sites. So they're not even, they're just letting these search results bubble up to the to near the top of the, of the search page uh, to see if they can get people to click on them, basically for free, right? So right. they don't have to buy the ads. Uh, yeah. in, in both versions of these schemes, the spoofed portal prompts the customers to enter a bunch of information. First off, their account credentials, their telephone number, and then their security questions. And then these actions, of course, fail to grant access. At that point in time, the account holder, the, the, the victim here, would get a phone call from the, from the malicious actor here who falsely claims to represent this institution that they've been trying to access. So in our hmm. example, you have a Bank of America account. You click on the... Uh, 
the the bank of the fake Bank of America link. You enter your username, your password. They ask you for your birth date, your telephone number, all this other stuff, and <laughs> your blood type. Right, blood type exactly. And then uh, you don't get in, and you get a phone call from these guys while they're on the phone with you, Dave. They're actually mm. logging into your bank account using all the information, and if they encounter anything at this point in time. Uh, this is my speculation, but the, one of the reasons they keep you on the phone is if if they encounter anything in the authentication process or the password reset process or whatever it is, they're going to ask you about that to verify some more information, and they're going to just enter it, and they're going to get right into your account, at which point in time they just start initiating wire transfers out mm-hmm. of your account. And the FBI says they have found that these people have taken hundreds of thousands of dollars out of people's accounts. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the things that that I think is particularly troubling here is that, you know, we talk about over on Hacking Humans all the time that if you get a link to something in an email, for example, let's say you get an email and they're saying that they're from your bank, right. let's say Bank of America or whoever you do your banking with, that you we, we our recommendation is never click that link. Instead, go to your web browser and put in the website and go directly to their website in a way, this is short-circuiting that because right. it's relying on people's either the tendency to, as you say, just search for the name of of the bank. Because if you if you fat finger it and you misspell it, you know Google's going to be your friend and and correct it for you. Right, right. right. Um, but this uh, by 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 sort of inserting themselves either in through the ad process or just through natural uh, search engine optimization, they're having the bad websites bubble up to the top. Right. Absolutely. Um, and I, I don't know, um, I don't know who to blame here, who to point the finger at. Um, obviously I don't want to blame the victims. They're actually being victimized by these criminals, but I'm wondering if these ad companies bear some accountability here. Um, these guys absolutely do not vet any, any ads that they get. They could not possibly do that. Um, you look at Google's, uh, revenue streams and advertising is the biggest revenue stream. They have millions of advertisers. And they don't have people that can go in and look at all these things. They might be able to write some AI algorithm about it, but you know, to see if this is yeah. uh, something impersonating a banking site. Um, yeah. But but they're not. They're not doing that. Uh, and I'm sure that they're they're working on it because I don't genuinely believe that Google wants this to happen. This is bad for Google, and I think they're probably working on something to stop this. But it, sure. At the, in the meantime, they're letting people get abused this way. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's another example where uh, also a password manager can can help you out because Absolutely. if you if you go to the fake website and uh, summon your password manager to try to fill it in, you know most password managers will say, "Well, hold on here a minute, right. cowboy. Yep, <laughs> this is not hey, this is not the site that I had. You know, this is not where we usually go to log in here. Are you sure you want to do this? Right. Yeah. That, so you'll that have is that. especially true with the browser integrated password managers. Yep. Yep. So uh, another another vote for password managers there. All right. Well, it's an interesting story. Again, it's over on the record by Recorded Future. Uh, Joe Kerrigan, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Dave. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. 
The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.